Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. In 2015, the state of Connecticut completed a controversial busway that would take commuters a a few short miles from New Britain to Hartford. Then later, New Britain's baseball team hopped on that bus and rolled into the Capitol, too. Now, that coup wasn't enough to save Hartford Mayor Pedro Cigar his job. The reluctant mayor who took over for Eddie Perez after that corruption scandal lost his seat to Luke Bronin. Bronin, of course, had come from the administration of Governor Dan Malloy, who spent a lot of 2015 clamoring for more funding for transportation projects like that busway, while seeing his plans stalled by a stubborn budget deficit. Of course, when I asked him about that deficit early this year, he told me I didn't understand what deficit meant and that there wasn't one. Problem is, lawmakers in Malloy spent most of the year trying to figure out how to close that, well, we'll call it a shortfall. That meant a standoff with hospitals who felt they were taking the brunt of the cuts the governor planned. That standoff, however, wasn't anywhere near as bad as the standoff residents had at the DMV, where many were left just standing for hours. If you looked at numbers coming from state casinos this year, you'd think they weren't a very good bet, but that didn't stop Connecticut from going to battle with Massachusetts over trying to capture the greater Hartford gambling market. And talk about a gamble, Bridgeport doubled down on Joe Gannam, the felonious former mayor who stormed back to beat incumbent Bill Finch in a race that could literally only happen in Bridgeport. Let's see, is that all? Well, not by a long shot. Today on the Weekly News Roundtable, The Wheelhouse will look back at the big stories of the year. What are yours? 860-275-7266 if you want to join us. Comment at our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'd like to welcome in the cameras of CTN, the Connecticut Network. They've been so good to us this year. They're broadcasting uh, today's show. Uh, in our panel today, as always, Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello once again, Colin. Could I just say that was freaking amazing what you just did? Oh, yeah. it, was <laughs> like, it was like the whole plot of Downton Abbey. <laughs> you left out the part where the Dowager Countess goes on the busway, and also when Lady Mary proposes to Luke Bronin. Other than that, you like you, that was incredible. I bow down. Uh, thank you very much, Colin. Also with us is Keith Van of State Budget Reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Hello there, Keith. Uh, good morning. I can't top that. And uh, Daniela Altamari, State House reporter for the Hartford Current. Hello, Daniela. Hi. Uh, joining us by phone also is Christine Storch. She's editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. We'd hope to have her here, but the only real winter storm so far of 2015, or at least this part of 2015, has kept her stranded elsewhere. Christine, very good to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me, John. Okay, so before we go any further, Colin, let's just get to the story that, I don't know if it was the biggest story of 2015, but it just happened, and that's why we find it so fascinating. You covered the story (laughs) on Monday's uh, show, on the Colin McEnroe show. Uh, It involved Sheldon Adelson, two local Connecticut newspapers, a reporter from one of those uh, papers who quit his job. Uh, Steve Collins is that reporter. Uh, He was on your show explaining why he quit the Bristol Press. Well, one of the things I do is I I run this uh, nonprofit for young journalists, Youth Journalism International. And so in that, we teach young, we teach students all over the world about what it means to be a journalist and about ethics. And I woke up on Christmas Eve and I just, that morning, I just knew that I couldn't in good conscience continue to work for a man that I knew was just throwing everything that, everything that we stand for into the wind and 
you know, how do I teach kids how to do something and then not live up to what I'm telling them? So I get out. Okay, so that's Steve Collins explaining why he left a local newspaper. And Colin, you were just saying it was hard for it was hard to imagine that I could sum up all of 2015 in just a couple sentences. You tried to sum up this story, and it took you about five minutes on the air the other day. And and even you were saying, I don't know if that's enough time. What more have we learned about this unusual, crazy saga that you covered on Monday and that you've been covering over the course of the last couple of days? I'm not sure that we've learned a lot more, although um, one of the things that surprised me in talking to Steve Collins – well, just back up, and I, I won't take five minutes. Uh, I won't even take one minute. But so the, this is sort of a complicated story that does link, among other things, casinos in Macau uh, to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, the biggest newspaper in Nevada, uh, and to the tiny newspapers, the New Britain Herald and the, and the Bristol Press. Um, and and it, it's a story in which the acquisition, the purchase of the Las Vegas Review-Journal was at least initially done under concealment. The Adelson family wasn't clearly known to be the owners. Uh, there was a kind of a story that they wanted about a judge that, whom they didn't like or somebody wanted that story. We don't really know who. Um, that story wasn't printed in Las Vegas, but it was kind of printed in the Bristol Press and the New Britain Herald, publications not ordinarily known for their interest in the Nevada court system. Um, it was printed under a byline. The byline was Edward Clarkin. We're going to come to that with Christine. Um, uh, I'm pretty confident saying now, I'm very confident saying right now that Edward Clarkin is Michael Schroeder. He's the publisher uh, and, and editor of the Herald and the Press. He was also kind of the point man, the visible point man for the purchase of the Las Vegas paper. Um, and so you had this weird thing where these little newspapers in Connecticut wound up publishing a story that somebody in Las Vegas wanted and didn't get, all of it very critical of a judge who's sitting on a very important case to Sheldon Adelson. That's it. There's, my time is up. And, and, and I think you did a very good job explaining it. As you said, there's probably nothing new that we absolutely know right now, although we have Christine Stewart on the phone, and, and one of the most interesting things about this is trying to figure out who this guy was, Edward Clarkin, who uh, wrote the stories. And turns out you were the reporter, Christine, who figured out who Edward Clarkin is. How'd you do that? Yeah. So uh, right before I left for the airport, I had gotten a tip that uh, Edward Clarkin had also written this article for um, this tabloid paper called Boston Now. And that was back in, I want to say, 2008. Um, so I went back into the Wayback Machine, <laughs> and I, I pulled that article up, and, you know, the byline was Edward Clarkin. And I was like, that's interesting. Who owned this newspaper at that time? Oh, it was Michael Schroeder. So uh, Michael Schroeder owns, you know, this newspaper where Edward Clarkin's byline appears. And I thought that was interesting, read Matt Kaufman's piece, um, you know, in the Hartford Current, also trying to figure out who this this Edward Clarkin is. Um, I'm at the airport waiting for my flight, which is delayed, by the way, because of a fuel shortage um, <laughs> uh, going out on Wednesday, um, the 23rd. And so uh, while sitting there being part of the news cycle, being actually part of the news at that point, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I started... Um, just uh, thinking about going through um, um, the obituaries and uh, the obituaries, I don't know how it happened, but it led me to Michael Schroeder's Facebook page, which also happens to contain his mother's maiden name. Um, and I would, you know, put two and two together. Um, his middle name is Michael Schroeder's middle name is Edward and, um, his mother's maiden name is Clarkin, and it just it just fit. And 
and that was that, and I took off on my flight for Christmas. <laughs> and you've been stuck at the airport one place or the other ever, ever since, so doing a lot of work from the airport. Is this, is this commonly uh, used, Colin? Is this something that, that reporters have done for a long time? If they want to write under another name, they, they use their middle name and then their mother's maiden name? Um, yeah, it's something we really have never talked about before, but pretty much everybody does it. Um, no, no, this is actually not something that – I mean, one of the things you – look, there are – I mean, in fact, restaurant reviews, which is the other thing that Edward Clarkin was known for in New Britain prior to all this, is one of the few examples of subterfuge where, which is sort of tolerated. It's not usually tolerated in the form of, of a nom de plume. Um, but um, it's usually, you know, people wear disguises and stuff like that. But in general, the whole idea of journalism is, unlike everybody else on the Internet, you put your name on what you do, uh, you put your name behind what you do, and you're accountable for what you write. So, so the m- most important thing we have to handle before we let Christine go is we need to understand that if anybody were to write um, uh, under a nom de plume here using the same convention, the Schroeder name. Uh, Christine, what, what, would your, uh, what would your Schroeder name be? Your, your, I guess uh, it's your middle name and your mother's maiden name. So it would be Marie Bookleitner. Marie Bookleitner. I love that. That's, a, that's I, actually that's a perfect name. Yeah. No, I, I like Daniela's much better. Oh, uh, oh, Daniela, what's yours? <laughs> Naomi Silverbush. <laughs> Naomi Silverbush. That's a pretty good pen name. So if you see any uh, Naomi Silverbush written columns, you'll you'll know to maybe uh, raise an eyebrow. How, how about you, Keith? What? I, I can't top any of these. Michael Benoit just doesn't have the same ring. Michael Benoit's pretty good. Colin? Wells Cotton. But my porn star <laughs> name is Kitty Pleasant. <laughs> And I'm and I'm Kenneth McCluskey. I, I, I will say that this story being at the end of the year sort of gets us to a couple of the other stories that I know that you wanted to talk about, Colin, very, very, very briefly. This is about the newspaper industry. This is about some things that have happened in journalism. And it's been in many ways kind of a, a rough year for for our industry. We've seen a number of buyouts at the, the Hartford Current. We've seen uh, some layoffs at other places, including uh, uh, the, the big AM talk station here. Uh, what do you see in this year of journalism? Well, I mean, maybe one of the solutions is to have people write under more than one byline, so it'll seem like there's more people working there. But, um, yeah, so Dana Whalen, a veteran news person, uh, was laid off uh, at WTIC. And then the current uh, has gone through another one of its incredible contractions. This one involves a lot of really well-known names, ranging from Tom Condon uh, to Bob Englehart to uh, to Marianne, Mary Ellen Philo, to Jim Shea. I mean, there's lots of other people whose names you don't know who are really, really important, too. And Kevin Hunt, I think, left. The, yeah, Kevin Hunt, Kevin Hunt left. So, and a lot of other people who aren't famous, but who are really, really important to putting a newspaper together. So, yeah, I mean, uh, as has been the case, um, conventional legacy media got smaller. Uh, Daniela, give me a sense of what this story has, has, has meant to you, how this story of the last couple of days about news, the newspaper industry— Isn't the fact that she's weeping enough for you, John? <laughs> —has struck you, and also just what was meant for our, uh, for our industry this past year. Well, I mean, as we know, as Colin just laid out, it's a time of tremendous change. You know, you wonder next year at this time what what things are going to look like. I mean, um, things are moving so rapidly and and there is so much change. You know, Steve Collins uh, put a line in the sand that uh, was was really important and and took a, you know, made a powerful statement, I think, with his um, with his announcement. He's got two kids in college. He's, you know, got a house and, and, you know, a family and and it's got to be hard and that takes a lot of courage. Yeah, the courage to, to leave a job that you, you probably love an awful lot because you just don't uh, uh, want to work for who you're working for anymore. How does this story strike you, Keith? I think what it, it 
really says to me and what scares me most of all, is, as sure as my name is Michael Benoit, um, <laughs> it, is that there's already a response to all these trends that Danielle and Colin are talking about. And that is that um, the newsmakers are packaging, some call it aggressively framing the message in ways never, never before. In other words, the newsmakers are very aware of the contractions that are going on in our industry. They're already responding to it. I feel, especially working, covering the state budget, that I'm always looking for the Easter egg, always trying to look, what are they trying to slip past the goalie? And I think that happens more and more when politicians realize they're dealing with younger and thinner staffs all the time. Does that strike you as right, Christine? Are you seeing a change in the way newsmakers are approaching the, the now thinned out news media? Oh no, definitely, and we are we are far outnumbered by by the spinmeisters and the, you know the the PR people and uh, you know even even the staff of some of the politicians far outnumber uh, the journalists in the state, and and that's a pretty daunting um, it's a daunting task. Uh, but you know we are we are small, but we are mighty, <laughs> and uh, we are are definitely still continuing to dig and. I mean, it, you know, Steve Collins, amazing, and um, his courage has been amazing. And I think that it has inspired all of the journalists in Connecticut. Uh, Christine Stewart is editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. We assume she will eventually be back in Connecticut, although she's been stuck at the, at the airport for, for some many days now. Christine, Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for joining us for a few minutes here in the Wheelhouse. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Thanks, John. We're, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to go rapid fire style through the year's news with Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR, Daniela Altamari, statehouse reporter for The Hartford Current, and Keith Faniff, who's the state budget reporter for The Connecticut Mirror. You can call us up, 860-275-7266. What are you, some of your stories of the year here in Connecticut in the wheelhouse where we live? This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. It's Wednesday, so it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, the final Wheelhouse of 2015. We're excited to go through some of the stories of the year with Danielle Altamari, State House reporter for the Hartford Current, Keith Vanoff, State Budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, and our own Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Before we get into this, Colin, what's on your show this afternoon? Well, perhaps uh, fittingly, it's historical fiction. So from Wolf Hall to the musical Hamilton to a new novel I'm writing in which Pedro Segarra kills Luke Bronin in a sword fight. Um, <laughs> obviously, historical fiction is something that people really like. But there's some real questions about what happens when you start imposing your own authorial vision on what actually happened in history. Uh, that's coming up at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. Very interesting. So let's get to some of the big news stories of the year. And there's a lot of places to start. But maybe I should just go around the table and just ask each of you, what are your big stories of the year? Danielle, I'll start with you. I mean, when you think back on this year, what are the things that really stick out to you? Well, I think uh, when you look at sort of look at the governor's year, I mean, you know, he started towards the beginning of the year making headlines, taking on the governor of Indiana over the, um, you know, uh, marriage equality issue over there. And then he, you know, sort of uh, ran through the year with some issues here in the state, but then, you know, rose to national, uh, you know, level discussion again with the whole Syrian refugee crisis and and really put himself out in the forefront of that. He's going to be taking over as the 
Democratic uh, governor's, or he he's already has taken over as a Democratic governor's chair. Um, so we'll probably be seeing more of that. Certainly the refugee issue, you know, got him on all the talk shows, um, got people talking here in the state and, and around the country. So I think those were some of the, especially the refugee issue was a, was a very big issue here. And in a moment, I think we'll get to Keith with sort of the Connecticut version of Dan Malloy. But you've written a lot about this, Colin, is we really have seen in this year the two different sides of Dan Malloy. The one that Danielle describes taking on the governor of Indiana, going after some of these big national issues, whether it's guns or refugees or marriage equality. And then we see sort of a different Dan Malloy here at home. I think we see many Dan Malloys, actually. And uh, and the refugee issue, I can't remember whether it was 20, 2014 or 2015, but, you know, the other refugee issue was were the influx of uh, children and other refugees from the northern part of Central America. And he didn't want those. Uh, I mean, he was very emphatic about the fact he didn't want them. So he kind of, there's two Dan Malloys even on the subject of refugees. Um, and I think in Connecticut, we saw kind of some different manifestations of him, too. You know, there was... Uh, yeah, there was sort of still the tough guy, the guy who really put out um, a pretty punitive initial budget, particularly for human services. I mean, it just mm-hmm. completely freaked out the human services sector. Uh, I thought at the time, you know, that this is here's a guy who'd been through the human services sector as a kid, as a kid who had severe dyslexia. You know, and the lesson that he seemed to learn from it was, well, that's all totally disposable. We can get rid of that, uh, which is kind of a strange lesson to learn. Uh, on the other hand, I think there were some real efforts made, some of them consciously, to soften his image. Um, we heard uh, a lot of things about a brighter Connecticut. Uh, that seemed to be a buzzword for them for a while. And I feel like he's been, you know, he's, he's the porcupine. So it's a little alarming when he adopts a hug the press strategy. But he's kind of got a hug the press strategy going on right now, right? We're all getting, well, not me, but a lot of you are getting calls and emails <laughs> and sort of overtures of friendship and stuff. There's kind of a sense that he doesn't really want to be known here in Connecticut as the guy who can't get along with anybody. So just at a personal level, I, I do think he's tried to refashion his image a little bit. Keith? I, I just want to make clear, I didn't get a hug. <laughs> I didn't get a high five. I don't think I got a casual wave. Yeah. But He uses MailChimp for high fives. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, the best way I could try to sum up what happened in terms of, of state finances, this fiscal iceberg that you know, people have pointed to on the maps all these years is coming. You can now see it off the starboard bow. For the first time, you saw a real backlash from the business community. Just you know, to remind everyone in 2014, and this goes beyond Governor Malloy and Tom Foley, we had every candidate under the sun planting these little ticking time bombs of fiscal expectation. Big tax cuts after the election. We've licked our problems. Everything's wonderful. And then we get into 2015. And the fiscal conditions haven't changed. We have just as many resources as they told us in 2014 we'd have. We have the same expenses. Nothing got worse. And half a billion dollars in tax cuts signed into law becomes $1.3 billion in tax increases. And we saw GE and Aetna uh, and other companies scream. And quite frankly, we saw Governor Malloy and the other politicians blink. Now, they, they have not – because of the numbers and because the numbers keep getting worse, we're not going to be able to see them just give GE everything they want. But we're seeing uh, 
if, if not desperation, some, some serious fear going on at the Capitol. And for the first time, we're seeing rank-and-file lawmakers taking a look at the numbers and saying, whoa, over the next decade and a half, things are horrible. That may not sound like a big story, but that's never happened in my career. Well, this, this notion that we are uh, in a worse place fiscally than anyone wanted to admit is something that, frankly, Keith, you've been saying for a very, very long time here, here on the air. Is, is this the year in which, whether it's the business community or the citizens of Connecticut started to wake up to this, this notion in a bigger way that, indeed, we really don't often have enough money to pay our bills, and we certainly don't have enough money to do some of the things we say we want to do beyond just the things we got to do. Absolutely. You're seeing right now both sides of the aisle. People are boxed in. Okay, they think they've bottomed out on what they want to do to hospitals. Nobody wants to touch town aid. Um, we've got we, we've got this new equivalence of uh, fiscal bait and switch. Before the election, we promised tax cuts, and then when we go back on them, we say, "Okay, well, we're going to give you." We know we reneged on those tax cuts, but we're going to give towns a whole lot of money after the next election, when there's a deficit right now anywhere from five to seven times the size of the town aid that we've promised. So, I mean, people are already basically saying the towns are going, "Yeah, okay, we're getting that money right." Um, if we see any of it, it'll be because you broke into our piggy bank and you know gave us something out of our wallet as a, as a birthday present. Well, Daniela, I mean, Keith suggests that lawmakers and Governor Malloy maybe blink at some of the big corporations finally saying, you know, enough is enough. We're going to leave Connecticut if things don't change here. Did you really think that that GE's threat to leave the state, that some of the other things that we've heard from the business community, that this really has been a year in which? Uh, People are being shaken a little bit by those messages? Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, uh, who knows, you know, whether it was a, a, an empty threat or not. I guess we'll see. But, you know, we, we saw a lot of anger at the Capitol this year. We saw, you know, the business community coming up, uh, really expressing anger after the budget. We saw um, the hospitals um, expressing really, you know, uh, profound anger and and um, frustration at uh, at the governor's proposed cuts. I mean, th- this was a year where you know you saw and and as Colin says, you know you saw disability rights activists and people you know coming up to the Capitol week after week. You know, really, really hurt and really, really uh, frustrated. So, I would say more than usual. Yeah. Keith and Daniela might dis- disagree with me, but more. Than, I mean, the budget process is never really kind of a theory that gets put into place. It's a lot of people running around, twisting dials in one direction or another, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, let's squeeze some money out of here, <laughs> let's grab some stuff over here, let's cut this, you know, and, and just trying to make the whole thing come in and raiding various rainy day funds and stuff like that. It, it, there's never much of a working hypothesis about what the budget's overall goal is going to be. Granting that, I think this year during the non-special session, there was less of a theory than usual um, to a degree that kind of shocked many of the lawmakers. I mean, even the last couple of days of the session, they were saying, we don't really know what it was we were supposed to do up here. And I think we have a better answer now. In a way, the whole um, initial process was treated – they treated the population of Connecticut like a gigantic focus group. It's like, okay, here's some stuff. We're going to do. And then they kind of took the feedback. And the feedback is all the things that Daniela just described, you know, all the people who squawked and yelled. And, of course, the focus group doesn't – it's not really evenly spaced, right? Some of the people in the focus group are a lot closer to the ears of the legislator and the governors, um, the the legislators and the governor. But but that's kind of how the process worked. What if we did this? Uh, And then there were two problems. First of all, as Keith can explain, there wasn't really enough money to do that anyway. And and second of all, a lot of people didn't like it. So – that was the theory. It was like just put a trial balloon up there. 
or a bunch of trial balloons and see who shoots at them. I, and one of the issues, of course, Keith, is it, it gets to this this two Connecticut's idea we've always talked about, kind of a state of inequality. The focus group includes, on one hand, uh, General Electric and hospital CEOs. And on the other end, it's people who need social services whose kids can't get some basic needs met. And as Colin just suggested, you know, you put those two groups in a, in a focus group, they're not going to get, I don't know, equal weight from everyone. No, that's that's exactly true. We saw, for example, for the first time since 1991, we, heard, we saw Senator Martin Looney talk about Let's have a capital gains tax again. I mean, that is so taboo. In a, I'm sorry, we're a blue state, but we're a blue hedge fund state. And that's just those are fighting words as far as Fairfield County is concerned. But they were even though it wasn't enacted, they were uttered. And I think Colin nailed it. You have with the social services this expectation that was built. It's not that in 2015 politicians started to spin. The spin just has never been so far from the numbers this expectation of prosperity that they created in the last election followed by, you know, I mean, they, they, they were stuck no matter who they wanted to drop the hammer on. They said, wow, well, we really built their expectations up and now we're going to clobber them. Uh, who else can we hit? And then they realized there was pretty much nobody left on the list. I think that'll be the big battle, by the way, of 2016. It will be the wealthy versus the poor. When you talk about expectations of prosperity, one thing we're always very good at here in Connecticut is when times are tough, whether at the state level or in the cities, we try to figure out big ideas to make all the problems go away. And there were a lot of those this year. David from Woodbury is calling about one of them. Hi, David. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Oh, hi, everybody. Oh, first GE, please stay. But many gambling is a predatory entity. We have two gambling casinos, too many, and the idea of a third is just uh, horrible. I I I agree with the governor who does not like it. We I hope it never gets built. I, more than a hope. It, it, it must never get built. Well, David, thank you very much, and, and Happy New Year to you. So this is one of the things we talked about, Danielle, right? There's two casinos in southeastern Connecticut, uh, both owned by Native American tribes. But Massachusetts decided to get into the gaming business in a big way, putting a casino in Springfield. At least uh, they're, they're talking about putting a casino in Springfield. Every time I look at that plan, it seems to be shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. But during the course of this, there was an awful lot of talk about how the tribes can get together with the state and head off some of those people who are going to be going up to Springfield. So, as David suggests, we've been spending some time talking about should we build a third casino in Connecticut? Yeah, and we're already seeing, you know, uh, the trade unions coming out to the Capitol and putting pressure. You know, they want to see this built. So, you know, that 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 is definitely going to be a big issue, you know, going forward. But, but of course, one of the things, Keith, is if you look at the the take from the casinos uh, in Connecticut and all up and down the eastern seaboard, over the last couple of years, maybe this isn't the best bet right now. I mean, gambling is not necessarily thriving. No, I mean, the, the take is continuing to go down. Uh, on the positive side, both of the tribes, the Mohegan and the Mashantucket Pequots, have really begun to diversify. I mean, they are little mini um, economic um, angel investors. They've got, I mean, from commercial developments, bakeries, um, movie theaters, they're putting money into different things. And I think what they're trying to say is, can this buy us some time to diversify? Without taking a side on that, though, I think either way, you're going to see them continue to do that because 
Connecticut is moving away from gambling, and I don't think anything's going to change that. And, and, and the, the latest idea that has been floated, Colin, is that a, a casino might come to the, the North Meadows of Hartford, although the new mayor, Luke Bronin, who we'll talk about in just a moment, has suggested he doesn't think that's the best idea. I mean, we've spent some time talking about casinos. Hey, we might even get Kino this year, finally. Right. Before I answer, I'd like just to take a sip of this delicious Mashantucket coffee. It is good, good. Um, all right. So, um, yeah, I think this, the casino in Hartford is a non-starter. Unless Luke really changes his mind, you're just not going to be able to do that. Um, and, and the theory of this is that and the theory of this whole casino movement is that gamblers are like shad, you know. They swim upstream, and if you can sort of net them somewhere around Enfield, you know, they won't get into Massachusetts and spend their money. And I'm not really sure it really works that way. Um, it, it, you know, and, and Keith is absolutely right about the diversification. But that had to happen. The, the handle has been going down year after year. And this didn't – the handle is the overall money, amount of money bet. And it, this didn't start recently. I mean the handle has been going down steadily for many years now. So these two tribes, and they're very smart people and they, they understand this, they know ultimately that they're, the goose that lays golden eggs is doing what all geese do when they get older, lay fewer eggs and then ultimately stop laying them at all. Now, this is one of the big ideas that, that came to the state. The other one, as I suggested at the front of the program, was this notion that Hartford could build a baseball stadium to attract a minor league team to come just a few miles up the road from New Britain. This would leave New Britain without a team, uh, at least for, for a while. And the way that this stadium, Colin, which we are seeing now rise up over uh, I-84, has been built has has provided almost an endless supply of stories about how not to roll something out. All of that said, and the fact that Pedro Segarra, who wanted the stadium built, lost his reelection bid, it seems as though it'll get built and minor league baseball will come to Hartford and it's in an empty parking lot. And maybe that's a better thing than, than what Hartford had there before. Well, I think the only it's sort of like T.T. Fast Track, no matter what you thought about it when it was in its planning stages, the only moral or ethical thing to do is to root for it once it's built. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I didn't like the process very much. Uh, in fact, there were so many things not to like about the process, as you've suggested. It's hard to just pick one. But ultimately, that doesn't matter because it's going forward. It's going to get built. This is another thing that Bronin has said. You know, we all have to now really want this to work. There isn't a scenario where it doesn't work and a lot more people don't get screwed. Do, do you think, Keith, that this is just a continuation of something Connecticut has done for a long time? Is We kind of bet on these big-ticket ideas. We think that there's going to be something to solve the problem. In Hartford, it's a minor league baseball uh, stadium. In, in Bridgeport, we're going to put a Bass Pro Shops down along the waterway. I mean, are we just doing more of the same? I think there's always been this theory that if you can create this critical mass, if you build it, they will come. Um, and, you know, I'm going to have to show my bias here. But uh, another reporter I know at the Hartford Current has done some some work on Dillon Stadium. Um, and uh, it seems like Hartford, you know, their, their approach, whether it's a soccer stadium or a baseball stadium, they're just having a tough time putting together this critical mass. They're They're groping for some quick, easy answer. And Dillon Stadium, of course, the uh, the football stadium just uh, outside of the Colt Armory, Daniela, and trying to make it into a major league soccer stadium has just uncovered a whole new series of follies this year. Yeah, and uh, Keith's right. Uh, Jenna Carlesso has done some great work on that. And, um, you know, it goes, I mean, think of the New England Patriots, you know, uh, two decades ago. I mean, this is the same story over and over again, right? Jenna Carlesso is my Schroeder name. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> Somebody who Keith knows very, very well. Um, well. When we get to some of the big things that we uh, have built, maybe some of the big things we want to build, let, let's talk about Governor Malloy's transportation plan. I mean, we, we uh, started the year 
hailing this new busway. Now, a lot of people, Danielle, complained about the fact that we were building this busway to nowhere, 17 miles that was going to go from New Britain to Hartford. Who's really going to ride it? Seems as though, in some ways, it's been successful. It seems as though uh, it's quieted some critics. Uh, Governor Malloy's literally hopped aboard the bus, and he's also uh, hopped aboard the idea that we need to build more things like that. But all those things that we just talked about before, the big budget problems that we've had, seem to have stalled the notion that we're going to invest in transportation infrastructure in the state the way we should right now. Yeah, and he points out, I mean, with the busway, he inherited it. That was down the track before he, you know, before he came on board, and it was, you know, largely federally funded. So, I mean, you know, that that's a little bit of a sort of a specific thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's made, uh, you know, addressing transportation issues the number one priority, and it's, you know, certainly down in Fairfield County especially, it's it's a very, very big issue. Um, it, it, Colin, you know, we see the bus. Well, you just talked about the, the minor league baseball stadium. Once it gets built, it's a pretty good uh, idea to root for it. it. Does the busway point at least in the direction of where Connecticut could go with more sorts of transportation projects like this if we could ever figure out a way to fund them? Right. So a couple of things here. Um, actually, the bus, busway brought up the other pseudonym story of the year besides uh, Edward Clark and Mike Sanders, who's a great guy who works for DOT, but he kind of got caught going on some comment threads with, under his uh, Schroeder name, which was, give me a break. Um, <laughs> Sticking up for and correcting people who were basically saying things about the CD fast track that was were wrong. Uh, so um, I mean, I, to me, that was more funny than like a horrible thing. But it wasn't great for Mike to do that. Um, you know, I just want to go back and sort of contrast two things. The the CT fast track, as Daniela said, went through this incredible scrutiny process. It began in the 90s, and to get this money from the federal government, you've got to jump through all kinds of hoops in terms of feasibility studies, traffic studies, you name it. It's a really long, arduous, fly-specced process. Um, putting up a baseball stadium, you can apparently do with like you know a letter to Santa and you know like uh, two major, major forms of ID. Uh, it really is like there's like there was no process whatsoever, as far as I could tell. You know, and it's sort of weird because people crab about the busway like it's some kind of political boondoggle piece of garbage, you know, that somebody put up. But in fact, I mean, everything, if you believe that government monitoring and, go- and government regulation can lead to better results, it really does go through the pipeline that way. People don't complain so much about sports stadiums because they like them. But, but really, I mean, the process by which this baseball team was transferred from New Britain to Hartford, the process by which the stadium was approved, I mean, there are student councils at high schools in Connecticut that have more rigorous oversight processes <laughs> than what we saw here. Keith? Just wanted to add one last thing to transportation. Um, we've got a report coming out in January that's going to recommend how we're supposed to fund transportation for the next three decades. And everybody has already got a dusty spot on a dusty shelf just saved for this report because they don't believe any politician in an election year is going near any document that contains the word tolls or gasoline tax increases. And I think you even in a way saw Governor Malloy um, imply that he knew that when he made this push at the end of of this year to get this transportation lockbox passed and and this idea of a constitutional amendment that's going to lock in transportation money that now he wants to do before we've even defined the sources. So it's this lockbox of crepe paper and graham crackers that's only going to freeze in money that's already there. But – all future gas tax increases or tolls might be outside of it. That that just screams to me that at this point everybody knows the transportation work is probably not getting done anytime soon. 
and they're trying to repackage how the public looks at this. Uh, Keith Vanoff, a state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. He also has a YouTube channel in which you can see him build lockboxes from crepe paper and uh, and uh, graham crackers. Oh, it's really quite interesting. I also make balloon animals. <laughs> we also, the lockboxes. We'll also talk with uh, Danielle Altamari coming over the next segment. She's state house reporter for the Hartford Current. Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. We're talking about some of the big news stories of 2015 here on The Wheelhouse, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to welcome two new public radio shows to our airwaves. We'll talk with the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. Uh, he'll preview his new show, The New Yorker Radio Hour. We'll also hear from the host and executive producer of Reveal. It's a new weekly radio program from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. That's coming up on tomorrow's show. Today in the Wheelhouse, a weekly news roundtable talking about some of the big stories of the year with Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, Daniela Altamari from the Hartford Current, Keith Faniff from the Connecticut Mirror. Kind of an interesting year for the state Supreme Court, Colin, this year. Yeah, and I think sort of maybe the theme is that um, Justice uh, Dick Palmer kind of emerged as the intellectual leader of the court, writing some pretty landmark decisions. Uh, for the, the, the biggest profile one was the uh, total abolition of the state death penalty. Uh, that's gone. But also the Richard LaPointe case. This is a case that really had hung around for a long time, needed a, a good disposition. Most of us feel that LaPointe was put in prison on a coerced and completely fraudulent confession. Uh, and so he's out. Uh, and uh, But the, the, this also revealed some pretty sharp divisions on the court. There's sort of a Palmer faction and then there's a, a more conservative law and order-oriented faction most vocally embodied by uh, Justin Carmen, Justice Carmen Espinosa. So the Supreme Court might be – I mean nobody really covers the Supreme Court anymore. It's one of the – you know, back to the shrinkage uh, of journalism in Connecticut. It just doesn't have the kind of scrutiny. The whole court system, uh, federal and state in Connecticut, doesn't have the kind of scrutiny that it did 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, but the Supreme Court will be probably fun to watch for the next few years. And this this story about the abolition of the death penalty, Danielle, you know, in the middle of the year, it sort of came up as this thing where we'd been moving in this direction for some time. And it is, of course, uh, a very important story. And it comes as the Malloy administration has really made a big effort on the Second Chance Society. I mean, there's a there's a whole change in the air about how we approach criminal justice in Connecticut that I, I don't want to gloss over too much uh, as we talk about the year. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll see a lot more of that in the coming year as well. I mean, uh, the governor's already laid out that he intends to reform the bail system in the state. He's going to tackle juvenile justice and do some pretty landmark things if, you know, we'll see what happens, um, you know, whether the legislature goes along with this. But, you know, there is this sort of bipartisan uh, effort uh, nationally. You know, the, the governor's obviously a Democrat, but many Republicans have sort of embraced this as well, um, this idea of criminal justice reform, second chances and, and, the, and the like. Well, one of the things, though, that seems to keep coming up, and it, it does have to do with criminal justice reform, is the state's Department of Children and Families. I mean, it's it's never really a good year for the state DCF because there's always a series of bad stories. But this year we saw the release of a series of videos and whistleblower complaints about how staff uh, deal with some of the children at the state's locked facilities. These are, of course, facilities that almost everybody in the state says we probably shouldn't have built the way we built them. There are also two controversies over the bodies of young women, Colin. There's the Cassandra C. case, the Jane Doe case, um, an awful lot of conversation about how the Department of Children and Families really interacts with some of the people that it's in charge of. 
Yeah, and uh, you, I think, probably know the Jane Doe case a little bit better than, than I do. But So the Cassandra C. case was a young woman, 17 years old, I believe. She had, I think, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. lymphoma. She really wanted to resist conventional treatment for that. Um, that, I think, did go all the way up to the uh, state Supreme Court uh, for one hearing, and she, she wound up being basically obliged to have medical treatment. She uh, was discharged later in the year in what appeared to be the bloom of health. It wasn't clear that she was incredibly grateful for what had been done, although it really seemed as though the appropriate outcome had happened. Um, the Jane Doe case is, I, I think, kind of an intersection of a couple of different things. First of all, the, the, this is a, a, a transgendered person who DCF was seeking to have transferred out of their custody and into, into the prison system. Um, so you got a couple of problems here. There were some real questions that were reviewed by the court about whether that was even appropriate, that whether she was danger, dangerous enough to want to warrant being transferred from DCF into the prisons. And if she was going to go into the prisons, what was she going to go into the prisons as? She was obviously going to be a very vulnerable member of the prison population, whether she was incarcerated as a woman or as a man. It wasn't going to be an easy thing. Uh, and Keith, when I mentioned the uh, the locked facility for children, this brings back the specter once again of John Rowland, the former governor, who uh, lobbied to have that facility built. Uh, everyone's kind of tried to disown that facility as much as they've uh, figured out ways to use it over the years. John Rowland, once again, back in the news this year, and it looks like he's heading back to prison. Well, the, 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 there was the uh, the conviction. Um, he is appealing right now. But, yeah, this this goes back to the arrangement that he had on, on, the, uh, on the radio uh, to try to provide some um, campaign assistance for Lisa Wilson Foley. Um, I, I think it, it just sort of not was a – not that it was a shock, but I think Connecticut had had started to actually move past this idea of you know one corruption scandal after another, and um, it, it, I noticed the tone at the Capitol, which is very interesting. It was almost received by the politicians there with this this mood of um, I want to move past it. Well, okay, so we're moving past corruption scandals in in one way here in Connecticut, and then then there is this. This is the voice of Joe Gannon. I made some errors in judgment. I got involved in wrong things and I broke the law. I breached the trust that so many have placed in me. And for that, and for all that we've lost, I'm truly sorry. Uh, Joe Gannam, former mayor of Bridgeport, went to prison after a corruption scandal. He runs for his old job and in a fairly unlikely thing, Colin, at least for those of us watching from the outside of Bridgeport, uh, he wins re-election. He was on your program, didn't really ever kind of apologize for the things that he did. It sort of sounded like he did there. Were you surprised, as so many other people, that Joe Gannam is now back as the mayor of Bridgeport? I, I think it's got to be the shocker story of the year. I, I mean, it wasn't. it is not merely that Joe Gannon, with the incredible amount of baggage that he was uh, carrying with him, uh, is reinstated as mayor of Bridgeport. But also the Bill Finch follies. Bill Finch was the incumbent mayor and, you know, maybe could have staged a, a fairly effective fight to hold on to uh, his seat as mayor and then sort of, sort of bungled the registration process. It would take forever to explain how he did that. But, I mean, it was such a dunderheaded move that it, it's, it jumps out. I mean, this Ganim story took many twists and turns over the year, but that was a real startling one. I just want to just put one button on the rolling thing just to be clear. So, sure. Um, to the best of my knowledge, this case is uh, in he's, – he's sort of got a motion for appeal that's just pending, 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 pending. As far as I know, it's still – 
um, hinges on the question of whether or not the federal government, uh, the federal prosecutors were under some obligation to tell him information about the state of mind of Lisa Wilson Foley, the person, the candidate that he ultimately insists uh, was assisting uh, on, a, on a secretly paid basis, um, and that she, she had told federal prosecutors at some point that she didn't think he was being secretly paid. And so did he deserve to know that? I think that's why we don't have an actual you know, that John Rowland is not going to prison yet because the, there's a federal review of that question. Um, the other big mayoral race, and we've touched on this a few times, uh, Daniela, when Luke Bronin decided to run for mayor of Hartford, uh, there was some criticism from from people that you know he was coming as an outsider. Certainly uh, the incumbent mayor, Pedro Segarra, said this is a guy that hasn't lived in the city long enough. He's not really one of us. But he provides almost the complete mirror contrast to the Joe Gannam story, right? Here's a guy who has, has worked on ethics reform. He's a guy who worked in the governor's office. He's a guy who seems eminently qualified for this and practically almost any other job. And he's trying to and he ran a, a very, very different campaign than the campaign that was run down in Bridgeport. Yeah, the any other job, I guess, you know, he's young and we'll see. I mean, he, you know, clearly is somebody that would seem to have big ambitions and, you know, you could see him running for for something much bigger, uh, you know, very soon after, you know, he serves as mayor of Hartford. Um, we'll see. It's a tough job as uh, as Keith knows <laughs> from Jenna, <laughs> yeah. being mayor of Hartford is, is you know, uh, it, it's a, if it's a stepping stone, it's a very slippery stepping stone. We should be clear. Keith's wife was mayor of Hartford for many years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A slippery stepping stone, Colin. But, I mean, do, do, do you have hope going into this year for things being slightly different in, in the city of Hartford? I mean, it is, it is a new administration. Yes, there's some things that have been uh, messed up over the years. But uh, is something changing in Hartford? Yeah, there's a new phrase that came up in pop culture this year. It's called competence porn. And it's like movies like The Martian and probably everything that Aaron Sorkin ever made. It's sort of the excitement of watching people who are really good at things solving <laughs> problems or solving terrible problems. So, you know, I mean, and so The Martian is just a great example of that. I mean, the whole thrill of watching this movie is just seeing all these really super smart people solve problems. And so we have sort of the competence porn reality show. Uh, in Hartford. I mean, the, Luke Bronin does come in with an incredible bunch of credentials, but he he's pretty much like Matt Damon sitting on Mars trying to grow potatoes in his own poop. I mean, this is going to be a really, really hard... I mean, that's an analogy that I could stretch to fit Hartford pretty easily. Um, he's, there's a lot of intractable problems that are either going to be amenable to the administrations of Mayor Bronin or they're not, and that's going to be very interesting to watch. Um, I, Keith, this year we just have a, a couple minutes left. We Something you follow very closely. We were talking about the budget earlier. You know, we joked for years about the state of permanent fiscal crisis. The state of permanent fiscal crisis ended this year. Ben Barnes, the budget chief, announced it's over. Could I just say one thing about that? Uh, If you have a permanent fiscal crisis of more than four hours, you should consult your physician immediately. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, I have so many comebacks for that. Um, Yeah, I I think it was very clear that um, when Ben Barnes said that you could see the little laser light against his temple as he read. I, I think Ben Barnes knew what he meant when he said that we were in a state of fiscal crisis. I think he got taken to the woodshed for saying it. It doesn't mean that what he said was wrong. Mm. Daniela, you, you recently profiled um, one of our U.S. senators, Chris Murphy. You know, we talk an awful lot about bad years for politics. It seemed like a really good year for Chris Murphy. Here's a guy who is on the front of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, one of the few seemingly informed U.S. senators about what was happening in Eastern Europe. He really got involved in issues in the Middle East. And then he he got really involved with a bunch of Republicans around prayer and guns at the end of the year. It kind of seemed like a big leap year for, for Chris Murphy. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it. You know, he's in a good place. He's not running for re-election uh, for a couple of years. Um, you know, he's he seems to be hitting his stride um, on a number of these foreign policy issues that you mentioned. Um, you know, but he's still uh, in the minority party, and you know, I'm sure that's frustrating and difficult. And uh, certainly with gun control, you know, that's something him and the rest of the delegation have been very vocal on the frustrations about. There's lots of ways to be in the minority party, and he's been a very very effective minority vo- voice. I mean, I really, I mean, first of all. Somebody should now talk to Dick Blumenthal off the bridge that he's out on right now. Uh, we like you too, Dick. It's not like you like Chris better and stuff. But, um, but I, I agree. Murphy, he's in front of the cameras in a good way. It doesn't look opportunistic. It looks like it comes out of conviction. Uh, Keith, a, a good year for anybody else that you, that you cover on a regular basis? Who else had a really good year, do you think? Wow. Who had a, who had a really good year? And see, in, in my beat, it was who got disemboweled the least. <laughs> so – if if you're asking me who had a good year, I would probably say Connecticut's wealthier households in Fairfield County because when you look at what they almost got hit with versus what they actually got hit with, um, and I wouldn't hold my breath for 28. Uh, they, they'll maybe be okay in 2016 by 2017. Batten down the hatches. Uh, anybody else you think had a really good year, Danielle? Well, I think, you know, going back to the governor, you could argue that he had a pretty good year. I mean, he's, you know, he's a national guy now, campaigning for Hillary, going all over the place. I mean, you know, maybe at home the story is different, but, you know, certainly politically, maybe for him it wasn't a bad year. Colin, for you? Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Malloy's an interesting one. He had a good year, but he's sort of a prophet without honor in his own country. I mean, he has a terrible, a terrible approval rating oh, yeah. in Connecticut. Yeah. So it, it depends on what you think absolutely. that he thinks his job is right now. Well, look, for the last minute that we have, you, you mentioned Bernie Sanders. Bernie we haven't. Sanders. We've been talking about we've been talking about Connecticut politics for the most part. But given what Keith just said, a really good year again for wealthy households in Connecticut. I mean, is is the Bernie Sanders effect likely to be felt over the course of this next year? The, the notion that he continues to hit that uh, we need to rebalance uh, the playing field here in America. Well, yeah, I think Keith said earlier in the show that the, the battle of the coming year or two will be the rich versus the poor. And I mean, very in, in two different political spheres nationally, Republican and Democrat, there is, and David Frum wrote a great article about this in The Atlantic, this kind of sense of all the people who really do feel left behind, who, who didn't, the, the economy recovered after 2008, but the people didn't. Uh, and Bernie Sanders is talking to one group of them saying, here's why you didn't recover and here's what needs to be done for, for you to feel, to be made whole again. And then Donald Trump and a bunch of other people are saying basically the same thing. You ne- you didn't, we're, we're still weak, things aren't good, here's how I'm going to fix it. Colin McEnroe hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thanks for everything this year, Colin. I appreciate it. Bernie Sanders. Uh, thanks to Keith Vanna, state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Happy New Year to you, Keith. You as well, John. And Happy New Year to Daniela Altamari, state house reporter for the Hartford Current. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Our program, as always, is produced by Tucker Ives with help from Lydia Brown. Heather Brandon's our digital editor. Our technical producer is Kyle Wolf, the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Our intern today is Nate Gagnon. Continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.